Welcome back, everyone. Um, um, first of all, let, let, let me say how, how very pleased um, I was when Richard put to me the idea of having a conference uh, here in Kingston uh, in honour of, of Frances Yates. Um, I think that although towards the end of her life she was greatly honoured, um, I think there is a sense in which um, you know, her contribution has, has, what shall we say, has fallen into a little bit of an eclipse in the, in the intervening years. And I think it's very good to remind ourselves of the extraordinary quality of, of some of her work. You know, that some of what she's done remains unsurpassed today. What she did on festivals, or what she did uh, on a royal and imperial imagery, uh, what she did on the French academies, the biography um, of Florio. And I think there are other fields in which one can feel that she was a pioneer um, who established lines of research which inevitably have, in some respects, gone beyond what she did. And of course, like all of us humanist scholars, sometimes perhaps she was over-optimistic about the match between the documentation and the theories. And I think it's a good thing for us to remember that that's something that can happen to any of us. Sometimes when we have a, when we have a pet idea, uh, we see a document and it jumps and we, we take it that way and, and we perhaps aren't always as, as questioning and as doubtful as, as sometimes uh, we wish that we, we had been. I suppose the whole business about the, um, the, the Galileo drawing um, would be an example of something where wishful thinking uh, perhaps sometimes takes um, the advantage. So I, as I said, first of all, I'm very grateful to, to Richard and his team for putting this on because I think it's very important to, to, to mark the importance of, 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 of her contribution. But now let me go to my official job and in introduce Margaret. Margaret McGowan, of course, was a pupil of Francis Yates at the Warburg Institute in the early 1950s. She's a research professor of French at the University of Sussex, where she was senior pro-vice-chancellor between 1992 and 1997. She's a fellow of the British Academy, of which she was vice-president from 1996 to 1998. She's published on festivals, on royal entries, on dance history, on Montaigne, on Rossard, and on the vision of Rome in late Renaissance France. Recently, she's been working on violence in relation to festivals, and her talk today is entitled Francis Yates, Phantom of Empire in a Season of Violence. Margaret. Thank you very much, Peter, uh, for that introduction, and I would like to endorse what you said ab about Richard having organized this festival of Francis Yates, um, because that is what I feel. She would love to have been here because she herself much enjoyed dispute, as I discovered as a student of hers. Whenever, and it was very often I didn't agree with her, she became even more enthusiastic. She was a very enthusiastic teacher and scholar. And she was a writer who followed her intuitions, pursuing them along paths unexplored by other scholars of her generation. 
But what gave her writing particular potency was she seemed, as we've already heard today, to walk hand in hand with the artists and philosophers she was interested in, conversing with them as though they were her living companions. Using methods of analysis developed at the Warburg Institute, which she joined in the middle of World War II in 1941, she drew connections between texts and across images, put magic and science on the same plane of significance, and studied poems and philosophy together. Although, as we've heard, her enthusiasm often could lead to overstatement, to a tendency to offer a single layered projection of a thorny subject made up of many complexities, she nonetheless opened up exciting new fields of inquiry. She revolutionized our knowledge of the art of memory. She expanded the context in which the occult could be studied and introduced us to groundbreaking work of humanists in the academies of early modern Europe. Today, I want to explore a notion coined by her. It's that of the phantom of empire, a concept that lurked behind her imaginative reconstructions of the past and which revealed habits of mind that tend to get forgotten in the crush of past events and, and facts reassembled by historians. As she herself observed, and Richard quoted it earlier today, history as it occurs is not the whole history, for it leaves out hopes that never materialized. These hopes were often her concern. She explored the tenacity with which the idea of the revival of empire stayed in the minds of artists and poets in the Renaissance. She explored this tenacity in a number of works. Early on in her contribution to Jean Jacques' volumes on the Fête de la Renaissance, one of which focused on the festivals and ceremonies <coughs> organized for Emperor Charles V, also in her edition of the entry of Charles IX into Paris um, in 1571, which was published in 1574, and more comprehensively in her book that we've heard about already today, Astrea, published in 1975, which brought Elizabeth I center stage. In this last study, Astrea, she's quite adamant that the revival of imperialism, even for Charles V, was a phantom revival. But then she goes on to stress the paradox that it was unquestionably because the notion of empire was illusory that it prospered and exercised such an extraordinary influence on the minds of princes, writers, and artists. Thus, she states categorically on page one of Astrea, it is precisely as a phantom that Charles's empire was of importance. Of course, it raised again the imperial idea 
and spread it through Europe in the symbolism of its propaganda. The revival of imperialism can be traced back to the writings of Virgil and Dante. The latter, for instance, had argued in the De Monarchia that to ensure peace, one prince must be arbiter of others who had to be content to live within the limits of their own kingdoms. But was this a sensible view in early modern states of Europe? Erasmus thought not, since the individual concerns of princes and their ambitions rendered Europe but a shadow, and rendered empire but a shadow and a phantom. Yet the notion did revive. It had been attributed to French kings by the end of the 15th century, to Charles VIII in particular, and was thought to belong more comprehensively to Emperor Charles V, ruler of vast territories and elected Holy Roman Emperor at the beginning of his long reign in 1519. The concept of empire was very fluid, capable of being manipulated in any number of ways. For Charles V, his imperial attributes were the eagle, with its wings spread over the world. His device, adopted from 1530, but suggested even earlier in 1519, was the two pillars of Hercules. You see the device as it was depicted in the volume commemorating his life, published in 1558. The pillars of Hercules are standing at the threshold of the limits of the known world and inviting discovery beyond those limits. His motto, plus ultra, even further, implied both unlimited territorial dominion and the capacity to reach always beyond oneself. And finally, the imperial crown closed at the top. His son, Philip II, inherited these attributes. In France, however, Aridou, his earlier French kings before him, also sported a closed imperial crown. A personal device in the shape of a half moon with the motto, Donec totum imperat, or bem, till he replenished the whole world, Henry II's device. His imperial ambitions couldn't be clearer. His son, Charles IX, also appropriated the imperial crown. Initially, he had as his device two twisted columns, which flanked, for example, the figure of majesty in his, and with his personal motto, Pietate et Justitia, Piety and Justice, as could be easily seen on the Theatre de Châtelet for his royal entry into the capital in 1571. These twisted columns, however, became straightened for the present which the city of Paris offered him on this occasion. There you see them nice and straight. Indistinguishable 
from Charles V's pillars of Hercules. These were straightened on the express instructions of the king. The city archives reveal that the silversmith, Jean Renard, was ordered to recast the columns, qui étaient torses, that were twisted, and to make others, droite, straight, and to add depictions of four victories of the king's army to the base of the structure. Imperial claims were nearly always accompanied by evidence of recent triumphs. One smells conscience rivalry in these commands for change. Indeed, in 1548-49, as Philip, future king of Spain, and had, um, as he and his father hoped, king of Spain and future emperor, as he paraded through Italy, through the German states and through Flanders, being received at each stopping place with elaborate arches whose symbolism encouraged yet fresh imperial endeavors. Virtually simultaneously, as Philip made his journey across Europe, Henri II visited cities in his realm of France, entering in splendor some 48 towns during his short reign and receiving at each the spectacle of triumphant structures that spoke victorious outcomes. Charles V and Henri II were constantly engaged in war with each other, in their own territories, in Italy and on the seas, and the imperial signs which accompanied their journeys provided another way of competing, while at the same time encouraging them to further martial efforts. Charles IX, holding in his hands the globe of the world in the opening lines of Ronsard's epic poem, The Franciade, also embarked on a two-year journey around France in 1564-66. The cities which he entered, fully armed and guarded by many troops, put themselves out and on the temporary structures which they built to greet him, they had painted imperial symbols expressing their hopes from this young monarch whose future triumphs would bring lasting peace, putting an end to the atrocities experienced everywhere as religious strife touched every corner of the land. Why then was there so much emphasis on a concept which realistically could only belong to one prince and which was commonly attributed to so many. How did the notion of imperialism survive at a time when a new political thinking suggested it was an outmoded idea? One thinks of the arguments set out in Jean Baudin's La République of 1576, for example. Can such emphasis and the durability of its influence be explained by the effects of those very wars that had raged all over Europe. There were conflicts, such as the interstate hostilities in Italy. There were the perpetual wars waged by the Turks, whose sultan's claims to religious and political hegemony were as ambitious as those of Christian imperial claimants. There were the religious controversies in England, in France, 
and in the German states and the Low Countries. And we should not forget the military invasions, Spanish armies in France, in Italy and in the Netherlands, English troops in France and in Flanders. Civil disorder was endemic, with massacres on and off for decades. Such was the context of violence in which notions of imperialism thrived. Yet patently, Charles V was no more in control of his vast territories than French monarchs could ensure peace in their land. Reality laid bare the empty, shadow-like nature of the notion of imperialism. It was in truth a phantom, while its influence is present in all the manifestations of power in action at this time. Before considering such representations, let's examine how the word phantom was used in contemporary writing. For although a shadow, it had meaning and uses. The historian Jacques-Auguste Dautoux, in his vast history of his times, entitled, appropriately, Histoire universelle, whenever he mentioned the Cardinal de Bourbon, now the Cardinal de Bourbon was the Catholic League's candidate, to succeed Henri III as King of France, whenever he referred to him, he referred to him as a fantôme. For example, the Duc de Guise, and I'm quoting uh, de tout, traînait le vieux cardinal partout avec lui comme un fantôme qui lui servait à faire illusion au peuple. The Duke dragged the old cardinal around with him like a phantom which served to bamboozle the people, who, at the Duke's insistence, saw in this shape their future king. In other words, the cardinal was a pawn, an empty vessel giving substance only through the power and reputation of the Duke de Guise, who wanted at all costs to deprive the legitimate Henry of Navarre, now converted to Catholic faith, to deprive him of the throne of France. The tool's use of fantôme to characterize the aged cardinal shows his disbelief in the substance of the prelate's claim, his insubstantial presence. The defined, divined, merely served to dupe the populace. But the fact that fantôme was an empty concept didn't mean that its original substance, empire, lacked impact. Yet as far as imperial pretensions were concerned, the two regarded them as monstrous. The idea of empire, or la monarchie universelle, as he called it, was a projet ancien et monstrueux, an out-of-date and monstrous project. The two argued that Charles V seriously entertained the idea for himself and for his son because he was drunk inebriated by his victories and prosperity. According to the two, to achieve his purpose, the emperor had relied on the help of Jesuits, who naturally perceived empire and the one Catholic faith as mutually reinforcing. Such views, the two claimed, were calamitous for peace in Europe. 
Although the historian was critical of Charles V's dangerous ambitions, he was more tolerant of his son Philip, whom he saw as clear-minded and intelligent. Some commenters agreed with this view, and two reported they were persuaded that Philip had no such pretensions because he knew them to be unrealizable. In order to pursue imperial ambitions, the King of Spain would not only antagonize his cousin, Maximilian II, but all other European princes. And yet, the idea of empire persisted in the minds of educated men and weighed heavily in the thoughts of ambassadors who, as late as 1597, were trying to negotiate a settlement between Spain and the Low Countries. The French ambassador, Guillaume Arcel, for instance, counseled caution in coming to any agreement, for he argues, and this was 10 years after Philip's death, that, and I quote, all religious ills in Europe stemmed from one source, from the ambitions of Philip II, who for 36 years had no other serious project in his head except that of pursuing a dream which his father had never realized, that of becoming monarch of the whole of Christianity. Opposition to such claims continued to haunt writing as late as 1616. And when he published his own Histoire Universelle, Agrippa d'Aubigny attributed the responsibility for the long continuation of religious strife exclusively to the pretensions of the House of Austria for world domination. Although words might oppose the idea of empire, actions and representations of military power promoted it. Poets, princes, and artists reveled in the opportunities that this notion afforded. When Charles V entered Bologna in 1530, on his way to be crowned emperor by the Pope, he appeared armed from head to toe, his glistening helmet crowned with a golden eagle, and holding aloft a scepter of power in his hands. On columns along his route, imperial images of Caesar, Augustus, Titus, and Trajan offered mirrors reflecting his own victorious force, while a huge military presence accompanied him. Soldiers chosen from every corner of his vast empire were seen dragging along cannons and other instruments of destruction to remind every spectator of the reality and extent of Charles' martial and territorial ambitions. On the day of his coronation, mass troops guarded the streets and underlined once more the military authority of the emperor. Such was the active, moving representation of imperial might, and further potential were reinforced by symbols and images painted on the arches beneath which Charles and his army paraded. When it came to depicting similar lively visions of contemporary structures designed to celebrate world achievements, then artists often had recourse to metaphor, covering their canvases with well-rehearsed stories from mythology. 
sometimes they couldn't resist the temptation to display their vast learning, accumulating symbols of power from compendia of iconography or dictionaries of symbols and devices. These were supplemented with legends such as that of Jason and the Argonauts' quest to recover the Golden Fleece, used by writers and artists to reflect the heroic qualities of patience and persistence required of any prince seeking fame and victory. Another recurrent theme was the Twelve Travails of Hercules, depicting the range and variety of the gargantuan tasks that faced a modern hero. But the representation of myth which I want to evoke today is that of the struggle between the giants against Jupiter and the gods. In other words, the revolt of forces of disorder against legitimate rule. And through the triumph of imperial power over rebellious heretics, be they Protestants or Turks. One of the first depictions of this theme to be seen by Charles V was the Grand Salon in Admiral Andrea Daria's palace in Genoa, where the emperor was entertained in 1529 and again in 1533. This impressive virtuoso display, recently created by Perina del Vaga, was repeated on the arches constructed for the imperial visit in 1529. In some respects, then, Charles, who in this myth was, of course, the victorious Jupiter, should not have been surprised by the startling representations of political and territorial achievement which greeted him when he visited the Palazzo del Te in 1535, a summer residence outside Mantua recently completed for Federigo Gonzaga by Giulio Romano. On the walls of the Salle des Stutes, he saw an imperial army on the march. He interpreted this artistic performance as a replica of his own mighty army in procession. And in the minds of contemporaries, it brought back the spectacle of his military entry into Bologna five years earlier. The room of the palace which impressed him most, however, was the Hall of the Judge, where, as you see, the whole world seemed to be tumbling down, defying normal perspectives as Jupiter's thunderbolts crashed down on the stones hurled by the giants, turning them back upon their heads and breaking walls and columns in their wake. As Charles stood in the center of this space, he exulted before what he interpreted as a vision drawn from mythology, especially for him, to mark his recent victories in Tunis against the Turks. Although this victory in Africa represented only a momentary attack for the armed might and imperial pretensions of Solomon the Magnificent, Charles V's triumph at Tunis went on being represented on canvas and in tapestry as a remarkable silencing of further oriental threats. The painter, Hans Floris, when he composed the decorations for the Genoese arch 
to celebrate Philip's entry into Antwerp in 1549, he was inspired by Giulio Romano's work. And Cornelius Graffius, in his published account of this famous occasion, provides a graphic description of, and I quote, those horrible giants who seemed to scale the heavens in their attempt to dislodge the god of Jupiter, whose companions' deities are depicted filled with fear and apprehension, hiding timidly among the clouds. Unfortunately, the engravings which we have of this design by Floris are of indistinct and of very poor quality, and the original drawings have disappeared. However, he did rework the idea when he painted his famous canvas for the fall of the rebellious angels five years later, which you see here. Uh, through the representation on the arch, Floris did not underestimate the significance of the lesson he was giving. He tried to paint the enormity of the task facing the imperial prince if he were to overcome Protestant heretical opposition to his rule. The same message, using the same mythology, was painted on the canvas panels which decorated the halls in Paris made ready for the royal banquet after the entry into the capital of Charles IX and his queen in 1571. Fourteen of the 24 paintings recorded the history of the titanic struggle from the initial attack of the giants on heaven to the rejoicing of the gods over Jupiter's victory. The painted struggle between the giant Typhon who was blessed with one human head, but also many animal heads, one human hand, but also several other hands, who dared to steal Jupiter's weapons. But Typhon's clumsy physique meant that he couldn't handle or control the thunderbolts or any other divine weapons very efficiently. And through his muddled incompetence, and also through trickery and magic, the weapons are restored to the king of the gods, who takes his revenge on Typhon and his fellow giants, despite the latter's effort of piling mountains upon mountains up to the stars. The rocks they hurled simply rained back down upon them. Now this rebellious tribe stands for French Protestants and must be considered in the context of the Peace of Saint-Germain in 1570. This peace, achieved with great difficulty, had secured a temporary lull in the religious fighting. The planners of the banquet, principally the poet Jean Gras, borrowing their inspiration from newly discovered Greek sources, from the Dionysiaca of Nonos, which had been translated into Latin and published in Paris two years earlier in 1568. From this text, the planners promoted the image of the king as lord of the universe, capable of holding war at bay once and for all. The seriousness of their intentions can be judged from the detail and the extent of the attention given to this particular myth. It occupied more than half the space devoted to the decoration of the hall. 
surely no coincidence that poets and artists chose the myth of the fall of the giants in the years from 1562, when religious contention spread uncontrollably through France. The myth provided them with opportunities to show devastation in the raw, to attribute blame, to excite the minds of readers and onlookers so that they might search for compromise and peace, and to offer vivid warnings of the consequences of not doing so. The violence had been spread out upon the representations for royal celebrations in 1571, and it had its corollary in the frenzied graphic engravings of Tortorel and Perissin, published as a commercial venture in Geneva in 1570. Philip Benedict has shown how these engravings, intended to be sold to Catholics and Protestants alike, recorded dreadful contemporary events in simultaneous narration. Massacres, rapes, battles, sieges, and citizens butchered by their neighbours. And I want to show you just two examples. The first, the massacre at Carr in 1561, and then again, these at Bussen a year later in 1562. So these were part of the 40s, um, all of them similar to this, published as a commercial venture in 1570. That these engravings imparted some kind of injunction to stop the fighting is likely, but their message is not clear. The facts of murder and death are obvious enough, but whether the perpetrators are Protestant or Catholic is less clear, since the pictures present a jumble with figures at the rear being the same size as those in the foreground. Only a contemporary observer would be able to determine the perpetrators in each case. As the Parisian printer Jean Leclerc observed, on the representing, sorry, on the subject of representing events involving intense activity, he wrote, written narration will not persuade as well as this picture, since men are more moved by what they see than by what they hear. Perhaps this view accounts for the multiple depiction of military achievement on palace walls, on arches, and on the friezes in Banqueting Hall. <coughs> Yet the poet Pierre de Ronsard didn't refrain from accepting Leclerc's challenge in the many works he composed in this period. On the ivory surface of his poem, dedicated to a musical instrument, La Lille, in 1569, Ronsard conjures up a banquet scene where the gods, relaxing with food and wine, are listening to the songs of Apollo, who, among other stories, provides an account of the triumph of Jupiter over the giants. Ronsard offers this victory as an example of the fate of subjects who rise against their king. L'exemple vrai, que ceux qui veulent prendre la guerre a true example of those who want to wage war against their king. This was a general warning from the poet, 
who had developed the same myth in his hymn to Winter, which he wrote six years earlier, where Protestants were specifically targeted. Winter has decided to revolt against Jupiter, who in front of the assembly of the gods had divided Winter's ugly nature. Ronsard relished the opportunity to evoke the range, speed, and diversity of their hostile encounters. He conveys the noise of battle, the clang of steel, the crash of tumbling rocks, and the roar of trumpets. During a victory banquet, Jupiter is persuaded to free his prisoner winter. The god's speech is restrained and conciliatory, offering a lesson in policy to the young King Charles. This living Jupiter, Charles, has conquered the Protestants, symbolized by the revolt of the Titans. And he has offered the hand of peace to winter, who stood for the reformed church. Thus the imperial power has in the poet's vision the capacity to triumph and then to appease. At the outset of this talk, I suggested that the concept of imperialism was fluid and subject to manipulation. And it did indeed acquire another interesting and significant twist. By 1613, many of the attributes of imperialism had not only been applied to the bringing back to order of the Protestants, the concept itself had been absorbed into the semantic field of pan-Protestantism. Frederick V, Elector Palatine, became a heroic defender of the Protestant cause. He was portrayed in the propaganda surrounding his marriage in 1613 to Elizabeth's daughter of James I as the figurehead of the military-led Protestant press. In his entry into Heidelberg in 1613, Protestant Union, the fulfillment of a sacred plan, was seen in the mythology that accompanied his procession into the city and his parade along the streets before demonstrating chivalric skills in tournaments prepared in his honour. He, Frederick, was the victorious Jason, his followers, the loyal Argonauts. His ship, the Argo, was built and protected by the goddess of wisdom, Pallas Athena. In David Jockey's detailed description of these events, the accent was on discovering the meaning of the symbolism to the extent that reporting actual combat in the list was virtually overlooked. Frederick, as imperial figurehead of the Protestant cause, counted for more as the symbolism painstakingly spelled out. The discovery of the new world provided further impetus for extended expressions of imperial ambition. In parallel with the imperial triumphal cars and classical Roman processions directly imitated from Mantegna's famous panels of Caesar's triumph, now at Hampton Court Palace, and those which paraded before the French King Henri II on his entry into the city of Rouen, 1550. In parallel with these reminders of triumph was an exotic spectacle which he encountered 
as she progressed along the streets. Constructed alongside the River Seine was a scene occupying more than 200 feet in length, depicting the lives and habits of 50 real Brazilians from South America, performing their daily tasks, building, fighting, hunting, dancing, fishing, or demonstrating truly, as the text claims, their claims, their customs, which the king observes as the potential ruler over such new domains. Discoveries of new lands and control over them was an opportunity also seized by John Dee, Queen Elizabeth's astrologer, who, anxious to build up the power of the British Navy, was lavish in his praise of Elizabeth I as absolute monarch. This enthusiasm for imperialism was first expressed in his published work in 1577, The General or Rare Memorials Pertaining to the Perfect Art of Navigation. Although Dee's concerns were chiefly historical, on the engraved frontispiece of his work, Queen Elizabeth is shown holding the rubber rudder of a ship named Europa. The ship is the largest element in the engraving, and in this vessel the Queen advances on the figure of Ocasio, opportunity, perched high on a rock overlooking new lands overseas. Elizabeth visibly directs her craft towards these new discoveries, thus aspiring to empire through her power over the seas. A year before, in 1576, Dee had been composing the boundaries of Imperial Britain and there had developed historical, legal and cartographic arguments to support his views on Britain's claim to maritime power. Francis Yates, who first drew attention to Dee's significance, interpreted his vision, his version of the idea as a visionary one by connecting his imperialism with the myth of the Magus. Recent scholarly work has shown this approach to be a little flawed. In the recent work of William Sherman, for example, and in the editors of Dee's works. Nonetheless, such inspiration is expressed in the many maps which claimed vast new territories, not only for England, but also for Spain and France, thus perpetuating the phantom of empire. Princes were keenly interested in the detail which maps provided, whether it was for military purposes, for invasion, or to establish claims on territories across the seas. At this time, cartography was not a neutral science, but another visual language which could be manipulated to serve partisan interests. In conclusion, we might ask why the illusion was so pervasive when the reality of violence suggests the impossibility of imperialism being able to realize its potential or being anything other than a kind of ghost or phantom. For poets like Walther, such phantoms, often expressed in the form of myths, could articulate the power of poetry. Its capacity to conjure up a world where truths hidden in fable 
reveal possible paths to discovery. Such notions allowed the poet and artist to display their virtuosity in rendering lifelike representations of military triumph in battle, providing the observer with what seemed like actual experience of the excitement depicted. Such potentiality touched the imagination because it could offer solace in times of great instability. Illusions such as the Phantom of Empire were used by artists as tools of persuasion and of defense. They lingered, stayed in the mind. For instance, the citizens of the Low Countries in 1609, assailed by this memory, could give no credence whatever to what they regarded as fraudulent promises of the Spanish negotiators. They could not believe them when they remembered the king of that nation, Philip II, who had been dead for over 20 years, had clung so tenaciously, as they thought, to his projet chimérique de la monarchie universelle, an acknowledged phantom chimérique, but one which still informed their thinking. On the other hand, it may well be that the notion of empire in the context of war seemed to provide a mode of coping with the harsh realities of every day, allowing those who grasped the concept to create a world they could believe in, however distant. Nostalgia for a past golden age where Astraea might indeed bring comeback still had force. What must not be forgotten is the intensely graphic quality of representations of this phantom in history, in art, and in poetry. Representations used to convey the desperate feelings of insecurity in which princes, poets, and artists lived. Political and military failure shouldn't prevent us from dwelling on the extraordinarily persistent and remarkable creative effort employed to keep hopes alive in a season of violence. How, how much this image was used and how it could serve ideas of establishing peace and enduring war and warnings um, against ambitions at the same time as offerings of ambition to the princes who, who wanted to think um, in that way. I think you've given us a real sense of the sort of the, the way in which this concept can be employed um, in so many different ways. By, by, by artists um, and, um, and advisors. Are there any questions? Richard. Margaret, thank you so much for giving us everything I could hope for in all our long conversations about this conference. I've been looking forward to it so much, and my dream has been realized today. It was an extraordinary perspective that you gave us. And, uh, I think with tremendous uh, resonance in terms of Gates' own thinking through what I actually talked about earlier today. But I wanted to press you on your own sense of how Yeats at the end was addressing. 
left her, I claim, on the wrong side as an Anglican writing about a militant Protestant imperialist crusade at a moment where it seems empire is curdling into something less ironic, less ecumenical, much more modern. How do you think Gates was thinking at the end about empire, faced with that conundrum that as an Anglo-Catholic, she was writing about a Puritan crusade? I, I'm really not very sure how she felt. I think, um, I think partly she was confused, and partly I think she, um, she felt she had got to leave it alone because she didn't know what to do with it, really. Um, and I think um, it, it was a concept that, as you illustrated so well this morning, um, it's one of those hopes that, um, that she needed but couldn't entirely believe it, although there were times in her writing when she seemed to. Um, but then other times when she, she takes it back, does certainly colour her writing. And, um, but I think uh, the phantom uh, is like all those other hopes. It's, it doesn't go away, but um, it can never be properly realised. we should move on to the next session. Maybe we could thank Margaret once again before we do.